The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is part four of Leon's story and focuses on his time in the band The Mighty Guys. In the late 70s and early 80s, the world experienced a rock and roll revival on the back of the hit film American Graffiti and its spin-off TV show Happy Days. Musically, the spotlight shone on acts like Stray Cats and Shaking Stevens. In Australia, groups such as Old 55 and the Silver Studs and the newly formed Mighty Guys. I talk with Mighty Guys drummer and vocalist Leon Isaacson and we chat about his amazing career. The three previous episodes have featured Leon in his days with Dig Richards and hanging out with the likes of the Bee Gees, Louis Armstrong and Johnny O'Keefe. The Mighty Guys had a great reputation for a live sound. However, they also sold plenty of records. Their album, Rockin' All Through the Night, went gold, selling over 40,000 copies. Here's a song from that album, Boppin' and a Shakin'. Looking through the records in the record shop Heard a little tune really make me wanna bow Threw up my jacket, laced up my shoes Do it like a madman to the crazy blues Yeah, I want a rockin' party How did you become a member of the Mighty Guys? Well, I first met Mick Hamilton down in Melbourne when he was playing with a band called The Vibrants. And uh, I'd gone down there as the musical director for the Deltones. And we got to have a bit of a play and everything. And then when he finally came back, uh, when he finally came to Sydney, I mean, he had he had some little gig and he asked me to do the gig. And uh, it was him and Phil Eisenberg and myself. And I thought, wow, this guy's great. He knows all the songs like, like John Hayton, you know. I think I must have been a bit of a guitar perf because, you know, guitar was the essential thing of rock and roll, you know, even though I play the drums. You know, I don't play guitar. But uh, to have somebody that could play all the things that Johnny Hayton could play and know all the songs that I knew, and uh, we used to call those guys that knew all those things, we used to call them Mighty Guys. And uh, apart from the fact that that gig I did with Mick, all the people always came up and said, Oh, you guys are mighty. Right. <laughs> so it stuck. So, yeah, so that's how it started. And, uh, and Mick and Phil and I did a whole lot of stuff together for quite a few years. And, uh, well, I mean, we, we still might do the odd gig every now and again up in Queensland or something. Well, if this next song, Look Out Mama, is any indication, you're certain to feel the dance floors. This is a rocking tune. Mama. 
Over the three-part series that we've been doing this, we've been talking about Dig Richards and the RJs, you were the Rajas, and now you're with the Mighty Guys. And we've talked about icons of world music, Australian music have come into your life. You guys signed a Glen A. Baker's record label. He wasn't the successful Glen A. Baker of the time. He was just pretty much starting out. Yeah, we, we went into the studio and put down a, a whole lot of tracks for Glenn. So Mick sent them to Glenn. Apparently, it took him about four or five months to even listen to them. And then he listened to them and he said, oh, they're great. That's fabulous. So, he, he, you know, he bought the album out and everything started taking off for us. And we were doing gigs everywhere. And that was really good fun because I was doing all the stuff that I'd always done. And so was the other guys. And there was a bit of a revival going on for all that old rockabilly stuff. People loved it. Here's a great song, Landslide. You guys got to play a lot of television appearances, yeah, midday yeah. type shows. Well, there's a lot of live TV shows in Australia, the variety type shows. And and because when the rock and roll revival was in its full swing and you guys were, were the real deal, you guys got a lot of work and a, a lot of exposure. Yeah, we did quite a bit. Mick seemed to get all the most amazing gigs. 
you know, that was the other thing about Mick Hamilton. He always came up with all these fabulous gigs for the band. And uh, I don't know, we toured everywhere and we did more records. And we, uh, it was just good fun. It was, it was just good old rock and roll, good fun. I suppose it would have been good as a musician too that when you're you're back in on the Sydney Stadium stage and the crappy equipment that you're playing, all of a sudden you're reinterpreting this fifties rock and roll through high class equipment. Everything was Oh yeah, we've got good, gear, now, now, good yeah. gear now. So yeah. we talked about how you weren't uh, weren't able to record with your bass drum in the festival studios. Yeah. So to be able to sit in a studio and let it all hang out is obviously a different recording process for you as well. Oh look, even even the live shows, I remember the, the really old days where where Dig and John and all these people, they'd be putting all these AWA speakers and putting them all in series across the hall and everything, and, and, and the PA always sounded like crap, you know. But with, with the Mighty Guys, we were taking our own PA around. It was a big, giant PA, you know. Oh, well, it wasn't, wasn't that giant, but... Yeah, I think we I think we did some Narara, and they had all these bands on it, and they were all arriving in semi-trailers, and we arrived in three cars, you know, and they said... So where's your semi-trailer? You know, with all the all the gear. We said, oh, no, that's it. It's just <laughs> us. So they had this some whopping big PA anyway, and, uh, and that was but, a fair But we deal. used to travel light, you know. It was only only the three of us, and that, that's what made it sort of pure and good. But that Narara festival that you're talking about, yeah, it was held on the Central Coast up at uh, at old near old Sydney Town there. What yeah, year was that? That was '83. The first oh, was one it? was on. Oh, see, I'm... actually, no, maybe '81. There was oh, a couple yeah, of years, yeah. but yeah, it was um some amazing bands, some huge international bands like Talking Heads and Australian bands like Cold Chisel. In excess, midnight oil. Yeah. So you guys were on the same bills. Again, the mighty guys were able to have a little bit of influence in their time. Oh yeah. We, I mean, I mean, the mighty guys even went on countdown. You know. Well, talking about that, you must be one of the only musicians that has ever appeared on Six O'clock Rock with Johnny O'Keefe and then Countdown with Molly Meldrum. There's not too many that could say that. I know, because Leno Baker said, so does this bring back any memories, Leon? I said, yeah, nothing's changed. <laughs> and he was quite taken aback by that. And uh, still a studio, isn't it? And to you, do you have any memories of, of those times? Or to you, it's just another gig. You just turn it up for another another place. Look, most times, I, I have to admit, it was just another gig. It was always just another gig. And if it was interesting, you did it, you know, even if it was different. Didn't matter. You know, it was all about playing, and that's what we do. You know, count me in, I'm trained to play. Here's a medley of cover songs recorded by the Mighty Guys. Hey, look at that. Here she comes. Yeah. 
Here's a TV interview with the Mighty Guys. The first to speak is Mick Hamilton, followed by Phil and then Leon. All of whom have got rather interesting backgrounds. We caught up with them in Sydney. Well, between you, you've covered the whole history of rock in this country as we know it, but just how did the Mighty Guys come about? Um, came about about two years ago. Basically, my idea was, was one to relieve my boredom doing uh, sessions, club work, whatever. It was all good bread and butter stuff, but it got a bit boring. And I thought, oh, well, get a little band together and play a bit of rock and roll that I grew up on. Maybe one, two nights a week for food and drinks and, you know, a bit of fun. 
So I rang the guys and they said, yeah, that sounds like fun. And from there on it just sort of grew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're in the same position, they're doing the same sort of jobs as me. And uh, it was never intended to be a serious proposition, but it uh, got out of hand. You're in the unit of... Uh being a support band for the Rolling Stones on their first tour, and that's way back in 66. What do you recall about those days? Yeah, well, it was the second tour, actually. The first tour, I was sleeping on the sidewalk trying to get tickets for it. The second tour, I was on the show. Um, all I can remember is that I was overawed. I mean, I was 18 or something at the time, and, and they were big stars, and I was, I mean, totally in awe of them, and I, I went on to the biggest crowd I'd ever played to, and. Um, I just heard some tapes recently, live tapes of that concert, which I was scared stiff of hearing. I thought they were going to be awful. And they sounded quite good. And I was amazed. The band sounded a lot better than I thought it would. And all I can remember is that we did nine concerts in four days, which by Stone standards these days is unheard of. You know? right, yeah. It was two concerts a day and three on Saturday. Right. Phil, you uh, worked with the Ferrets and more recently with Jimmy and the Boys which, uh, let's say, is a fairly colourful uh, band. Uh, is there much change of life that you're with a band like the Mighty Guys? Oh, yeah. yeah. With the Ferrets and Jimmy and the Boys, it was uh, a big hectic, to say the least, you know, with Joylene. And uh, those were the days before Joylene, by the way. She hadn't uh, come out to the floor. She was still in the closet at that stage. <laughs> is it true that you and she were engaged? No, no, yeah. there's no truth in that rumour at all, although uh, there was a bit of a love-hate relationship there, I must admit. <laughs> So, you, I mean, you're now back playing good old rock and roll, and um, how's it for you? Do you enjoy it? Oh, yeah, it's great. It's great fun. Much yeah, more these bizarre, Ben. Yeah, much more bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are great to play with, I must admit. Yeah. We're sitting in the festival recording studios in Sydney, and uh, Leon, in those early days with the O'Keefe's and the Digby Richards and so on, you've done a lot of recording within these buildings. Yeah, sure. Did you ever think that 20 years later you'd uh, still be here doing it? Well, no, no. <laughs> well, yeah, because it was a lot more sophisticated then. And, uh, you know, we had the lead weights on the gear, the lead weights on the thing, yeah. We weren't allowed to use them. It's great fun. No, I didn't think I'd ever get into this. You know, 20 years later, wow, I, I thought I'd be uh, an accountant or something by then. Yeah. And uh, how basic was it in those days to record? Well, it, it, it was good fun because it was sort of exciting and you really didn't know what was going to happen and the things that came out. But uh, nothing ever came out the way that you thought it was going to in those days. And that still, still sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, some of those things sounded terrible, you know, because the people who were doing, twiddling the knobs, that's all they were. And knob twiddlers, they really weren't into the music, you know, like we were. So uh, there, there was no relationship like there is now with the technicians that were 24 tracks and they were they're all into music and trying to get the same thing that you're trying to get as in those days all they wanted to hear was the vocalist and the song and had, couldn't sound too rock and roll it had to be fairly straight yeah. well someone has been in it a long while how do you see the, the scene generally these days ah oh, well I, I don't know it it seems like nothing's changed for us because we're we're you know, like it's... Sort of, Still doing it? Yeah, you know, I was speaking to your old mate Dig the other day, and he said, well, Dig, I'm doing the same thing we were doing 20 years ago. And, uh, it's, uh... It changes gradually. It's like watching your own child grow up, I guess. You don't notice him change because right. it happens day to day. If you go away for 10 years, you'd notice it. And we haven't been away, so you don't really notice it. You can almost call this Leon's theme song, Let the Rock Roll On. Let the rock roll on. Let it soothe your soul. Let the rock roll on. 
taken a lot of your time but i can't leave you without talking about the crazy books when did you start writing the crazy books uh when i when i was at school 1955 i think so i can tell you what i've done every day since 1956 wow. so that's how i know i've been i was able to write the book with john uh which we wrote in 1980 because we'd just pull out pull out the diaries and tell me, oh yeah i remember that gig i remember that and and that the best thing about the diary is the diary never lies, you know. You might think sometimes that something happened before this and something happened, but when you see the diary, it goes, ah, that's it. Just confirms everything for that's, you. That's exactly what happened. And, and I'll, I'll say it, and I can tell you when I recorded anything or I can even tell you who the tea lady was, you know. Wow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you've got pretty much a, a historical look of Australian rock and roll in your crazy book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was really easy to get it out, and then I, I that that book was really behind the rock was a success. So I did a behind the rock and beyond. Well, one last question, mate. Talking about the crazy books, there was a uh, a moment there where some promoter had dudded you, and and you met up with him in Indonesia or somewhere like that, and it, the he still owed you money from a gig that he dudded you on. We, we were doing a, a gig at a place called the Diamond Horseshoe, and it was sort of run by gangsters and all that stuff. Uh, Lonnie was doing the gig too, but it was the RJs and all that stuff. And apparently the the, the gangsters must have come around for their money, and, and the, the guy that was booking us was Dave Wolf, and he took off, and he still owed me a week's money. And then 15 years later, I went to Jakarta with Winifred Atwell, and he's the promoter, and I said, hey, where's me money? And he was all embarrassed, you know, because so he gave me a couple of hundred dollar American bill. He was civil will that cover it? And I said, Oh, oh I suppose so. Well, after, <laughs> well I reckon you're the only bloke to ever get money out of a promoter fifteen years later. I know, I but I he, he knew I had him I had him down because I kept the book. That's it. <laughs> 
And anyone who wants to have a, an amazing read of Australian rock and roll, the birth of Australian rock and roll, as you mentioned, your books, Behind the Rock and Behind the Rock and Beyond, it's amazing that you were able to put everything down on paper. I don't think there'd be any rock and roll band in the world that could lay claim to having such a uh, a detailed history of how they did it, when they did it, why they did it, and amazingly, and an amazing career. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Oh, thank you, Sean. Thank you. Here's another great original by The Mighty Guys. This one was written by Leon. Be cool, be smart.
this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions. Written, produced and presented by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kid. This is Molly Kid saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! Just stop and stare in a shot.